And uh, this morning we launched just a two-part sermon series on the theme of idolatry, dismantling life's idols. Uh, This is a stewardship theme. We're taking a break for a few weeks from our Setting Sail series. We've accomplished three of the five sails, three of the five series. We'll resume that after the new year. And uh, right now we want to focus on that theme of dismantling our idols and thinking about how that affects Christian stewardship. In just a moment, I'm going to be reading from Exodus, the 20th chapter, and from the prophet Hosea, the 13th chapter, two passages that are vital in our understanding of how we dismantle life's idols. Before I read that, I'd like to lead us in a time of prayer. Would you bow with me? Our holy God, we know that your ways are not our ways, your Thoughts are not our thoughts. You are above all, and you are constantly judging and clearing up our lives, sweeping away the idols, the false gods of mind and heart, reminding us to trust in you and you alone. We pray today that we'll hear that call. Today we thank you for our veterans and for those who are serving actively in our armed forces and for all the ways that they have paid the price to guarantee our liberties, including the right and the privilege of voting. And after this very uh, divisive campaign this past season, we pray that you will help us as citizens to remember that it's not only our citizenship job to vote, but it's also our calling to unite as a country after the vote, to get on with the business of living, And we pray, God, as we do that, we will never wallpaper over our deep differences, but we will learn to be a people who can embrace diversity while at the same time being very deeply united, deeply listening to one another, respectful of one another, living the golden rule of doing to others as we would have them do to us, and living out the gospel. And may the church, may this church be a place where we can model for the world how people can be together and united, even with differences. We pray, God, your blessing upon our president and upon our president-elect and all of those elected officials that they may lead us in righteous paths. Today we pray your blessing upon our youth as they worship, as they apply the gospel to life, as they make commitments to you and as they travel home. We pray your blessing upon those among us who are sick and troubled and grieving, discouraged and lonely and spiritually lost. Bless, dear God, the mission of this church. As we live in the midst of turmoil, may we live in such a way that faith, hope, and love abound in this place and spill over into our community that needs you so desperately. And now we thank you for sacred scripture. We thank you for the way that your words help us. We pray that you will help us to hear them, to read them, to mark them, to learn them, and to inwardly digest them for your glory and for your honor. Through Jesus Christ we pray, amen. Exodus, the 20th chapter, the first six verses, and then Hosea, the 13th chapter, two through six. If you're able, would you stand please? As I read aloud these verses, and as we hear God's word come among us, 
This is the beginning, of course, of the giving of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Then God spoke all these words. I, the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water underneath, under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments." Keep your place there. We'll be referring to that in a moment. Hosea 13, verse 2. And now they keep on sinning and making a cast image for themselves, idols of silver made according to their understanding, all of them the work of artisans. Sacrifice to these, they say. People are kissing calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes away early, like chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. Yet I have been the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It is I who fed you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. When I fed them, they were satisfied. They were satisfied and their heart was proud. Therefore, they forgot me. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Somebody has said that the Old Testament story can be summarized simply as genuine faith against the tension of national idolatry. All of the Old Testament can be summarized as that tension, that push and pull that happened over and over and over again. Now, when we hear that, when we read Scripture, our 21st century minds automatically go to uh, golden calves or wooden or bronze figurines sitting on a shelf or on an altar, and we immediately feel superior and we shake our heads and say, oh, those poor, ancient, ignorant people. But the truth is that a God can be invisible and be no less a God in our lives. A false God and idol can be unseen to the human eye and yet be just as real. I heard the story of a man who was on his knee proposing to his sweetheart. He had the ring, everything was in place, and after he made his proposal, he waited uh, in silence as she thought for a moment and she said, Tommy, I can't marry you because of religious differences. And he said, religious differences? We're both Baptists. And she said, well, the religious difference is this. I worship money and you're broke. (laughs) Gods can be visible and gods can be invisible. David Foster Wallace, the late novelist, once made the observation, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships something or someone. Everybody worships worships something or someone. I want to show you this quote by Augustine, uh, who, lived, who died in 430 A.D. He 
said, idolatry is worshiping anything we should use and using anything we should worship. Now, think about the implications that has for Christian stewardship, for how we use our money, how we handle our possessions, how we uh, responsibly garner our time and our energy and our spiritual gifts and talents. And just think of all the applications. Idolatry is worshiping anything we should use and then turning around and using anything that we should be worshiping. Augustine went on to talk uh, in his confessions about distorted loves or disordered loves, meaning that we can take good things and love them too much and so much that our lives get twisted and we, we experience the consequences of having disordered loves or love out of order or love out of uh, the proper sequence or sense of priority. And you know, you can apply that to any kind of God, a God of being driven to succeed, a God of being liked by others, being popular, the God of a good reputation at all costs, the God of our addictions, whatever our addictions might be, the God of our career. We have to keep our career as the most important thing no matter what else, and you know, the list goes on and on. Several hundred years after Augustine, of course, Martin Luther came along, did a lot of wonderful teaching on the Ten Commandments. And Martin Luther said, a God, small g-o-d, a God is anything we look to more than Christ for our joy, for our satisfaction, anything we look to more than Christ for our joy, our satisfaction, our sense of significance, our hope, our security, anything we look to more than Christ, anything we adore, anything that we rely on more than God. And that just reminds us there are lots of gods in our hearts. Moving to the 20th century, the famous theologian H. Richard Niebuhr, who, by the way, was born in Wright City, just a a ways down I-70, in the 20th century, he wrote and said that the most subversive god of all is the God of institutional religion. You read the Old Testament, and that's true. The most insidious, subversive God of all is the God of institutional religion because what we do without realizing it is that we fashion God in our image the way we'd like God to be because that's just so convenient for us. We manipulate the holy God and create that God to be very amenable to the way we're living. I have a good pastor friend. He just he reads all the time, and he just has a, such an insightful way of understanding things. We were talking not long ago about this and related subjects, and he said, we all interpret Scripture according to our other priorities and commitments. We all interpret Scripture in light of our other commitments. Ouch, that hurts. Do you you realize what he was saying? It should be that we interpret our other commitments in light of Scripture. But he was saying that we interpret Scripture in light of our other commitments, putting other things, other ideas, other people first. Well, we could go on and on explaining the visible, invisible gods in us and among us and all around us. But to look at the first text from Exodus chapter 20, 
The first two commandments of the ten are very similar. The first in in verse 3 says, you shall have no other gods before me. The second is very similar but different. You shall not make for yourself an idol or a graven image, verse 4. That's proof that gods can be invisible even in Moses' day because the first commandment is you'll have no other gods of any kind. The second is you'll not have any gods that are physical, that are, that are that, uh, those things that can be touched and handled and carried around. I call the first commandment the gateway commandment. The gateway commandment meaning that when we keep that commandment, it's easier to keep the other nine. And when we break the first commandment, it's easier to break the other nine. In fact, Martin Luther, uh, Martin Luther said that it's impossible to break the other nine commandments without, first of all, breaking the first one. If we have another God, it becomes easy. In fact, it becomes almost natural to break the other nine. And the second commandment about not having a graven image, a a carved idol, that was revolutionary for its time. In the land of Canaan, in the promised land to which the Israelites were headed, the land of Egypt from which they came, there were carved gods and trinket gods everywhere. You could go from county to county, township to township, and people would say, well, what are your gods here? What gods do you worship in this particular area and city? And they carried around these trinket gods, and this was revolutionary. This was evangelism. For the Israelites to bear witness to an understanding of God that was deeper than anything anybody had ever known or experienced before in those pagan lands. Pretty amazing. And then, you know, there's a phrase in this one commandment, uh, verse 4, that I'd never noticed before. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not make for yourself a graven image. Now, why that reflexive phrase of for yourself? Why not just say, you shall not make a graven image? You shall not make a a physical carved idol. Scripture says, the commandment says, you shall not make for yourself. And you know why I think that's in there? Because the biggest idol of all is ego. Ego. The idols that we make, we make for ourselves. The false gods we create, we do to keep ego on the throne, to keep self in control. You shall not make for yourself. So that what happens is that idolatry of self manifests itself in so many different ways. Brennan Manning in his famous book, Ragamuffin Gospel. I can be addicted to vodka or to being nice. I can be addicted to marijuana or being loved. I can be addicted to cocaine or being right all the time. I can be addicted to golf or to gossiping. Idolatry manifests itself in so many ways if self is on the throne, if we live for selfishness. And see, this is why the only liberation from idolatry, the only leverage we have out uh, to get out of a life of idols is the cross of Jesus Christ. 
The only way we will ever understand Christian stewardship of our money and time and possessions and influence is to understand the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me, let me explain to you what I mean. If you uh, had never experienced the Bible or the Christian faith, you would come to the 20th chapter of Exodus and say, here are God's Ten Commandments. And you wouldn't read very far into the Ten Commandments, just the first two. You'd never even make it to the other eight, and you'd say, I can't do this. I break these all the time. I'm hopeless. And that's precisely what God wants us to understand, that we are sinners. That God loves us and created us for noble and beautiful purposes, but we get tangled up and destroyed by addictions and by slavery to idols. And we look at this and we become hopeless, and that's exactly where God wants us. To admit our sin, to repent of that sin, and to look to Jesus who came, listen to this, Scripture says he was the fulfillment of the law. He led a life of perfect obedience. And he died on the cross for our sins. And then he was raised again so that God's love and God's forgiveness could reach us. And then that living Christ comes to live inside of us to empower us to make proper choices about idols and about worshiping the true God. He comes to live inside us to cleanse us and renew us and to help us daily make better choices about false gods and the true God. This is the gospel. Well, you might be wondering how, how did the Israelites do with that, those first two commandments when Moses gave them to them in Exodus. Fast forward several centuries to the 8th century B.C., in the prophet Hosea, and uh, the answer is they didn't do very well. Neither do we. Hosea was speaking to a nation that was about to die, and he was talking to them about their false gods. And he was basically reminding them, you know, those false gods never deliver on their promises you know, those false gods promised you blessings. How'd that work out for you? Those false gods promised you Israel protection. How'd that work for you? You're being led away into captivity. And those false gods promised you satisfaction deep in your souls. And how's that working for you? And he basically says, where did those gods go? Those false trinket gods that you had, where did they go? And then he does a beautiful thing in verse 3 of Hosea 13, he lists several images, the uh, morning mist, the dew on the grass, the chaff during harvest, and chimney smoke. He said the false gods and their effectiveness, their promises are just like the morning mist. Several mornings this fall, I've driven from our house uh, to the office, and when I get down close to the river, there's, you know, it was sunny where I left my house and they get down by the river and there's this fog, this morning mist and it's just everywhere can hardly see in front of you but you know what didn't take long the sun just burns that away, where did it go and we all know about the dew on the grass some pretty solid dew on the grass this morning wasn't there but it disappeared it, it, 
Where will it be when you go home today? It's gone. Chaff. Oh, I remember the chaff during soybean harvest, during those days of putting up hay or harvesting wheat. That chaff is so thick and you think, oh, never be the same, but then it just sort of disappears. And then smoke out of a chimney. Hosea says, where did your gods go? Where did, where did their promises to deliver go? Aren't we always stunned to discover that our gods, our idols, can't deliver on their promises? You know, experts talk today about empty calories when it comes to nutrition. Empty calories fill you but don't nourish you. And so Hosea says, God is the only one who can satisfy your deepest hungers. God is the only one who can satisfy your deepest longings. Don't go looking for that anywhere else. It was Barbara Brown Taylor who once wrote that if we are going to say yes to God, we must also say no to all of God's rivals. That's a word for Christian discipleship. That's a word to unbelievers to come to Christ. That's a word of Christian stewardship. To say yes to God is to say no to all of God's rivals. To put Him first. To ask Christ for the courage to dismantle those idols tear them down and fall in love with Jesus and start following him.